I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. When I was a young boy growing up in Zimbabwe, I was very much the funny kid, the prankster, the boy who always got in trouble. To the extent that one year, I got a report card that read, your son is a class clown and will not likely get very far in life. And the teacher actually threatened to tie me in a chair if I did not settle down. Ever since that fateful day, the funny has been beaten out of me by headmasters, teachers, and my mom and dad. Yeah, my parents believed in not sparing the rod, but they loved me. I know they did, but they're also strict disciplinarians. And in hindsight, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. But truth be told, at the time, it was not funny. And the brash, happy-go-lucky kid grew up to become an introverted, deep thinker. Fortunately, the trickster still lives, and every now and again will make an appearance, as my friends and family will attest. He is kept alive by a deep love and appreciation and steady dose of humor and comedy. I love to laugh. That is why today I am so delighted to be joined by Natalie Miller and Nathan Hartswick, owners and founders of the Vermont Comedy Club. Natalie and Nathan, welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. I must confess, I feel a lot of pressure to be funny right now. And so I have to start off by asking one of you, are people born funny or do you have to sort of feed the beast, uh, so to speak? And uh, can someone learn to be funny? I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting question, especially given your introduction and, and, and the nature versus nurture aspect of it. You just opened a can of worms, I think. Um, I think everybody's funny. I think everybody's got a natural sense of humor, and anyone can do comedy who wants to, and it just takes practice to uh, to, to build that skill just like anything else. But it's, it's a matter of taking your own sense of humor, your own natural sense of humor, which everyone has, and just honing the skill of, of consistently making others laugh. Right. I was actually um, mentally preparing for this interview over the weekend and observed a baby and realized that uh, a child laughs before they can actually speak and started wondering, is there something in that? Uh, is laughing it's very much a primal instinct type of thing? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, I used to be really into, into, prim- into primatology, and there is, like, there, there is like a primal thing that laughter, laughter and smiling, it can come from, it's a reaction to a lot of different things. Um, and you can see that if you're watching a stand-up comedian or improv comedian, sometimes you might laugh because you're made very uncomfortable by what they're saying, or you're taken by surprise, um, or, you know, or there's just something that you identify with and you're relating to it and that's how it comes up. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that everyone is born with this innate love of 
comedy and having fun. It's a universal thing. Yeah, I think we're social animals, and, and for whatever reason, it's programmed into us the instinct to laugh and the desire to laugh, um, but it's, it's what we've chosen to make our livelihood on. Right, right. So, uh, Natalie, you grew up in the Northeast Kingdom. What was life like there, and uh, what formative experiences in your childhood and your upbringing made you into what you are today? Oh, goodness. Um, well, both of us grew up in the Northeast Kingdom, actually, but um, but I'll speak to my own experience first. I, it was, it's very rural. Uh, the Northeast Kingdom is very rural. Uh, it's a reef zone, which is a, like a rural poverty zone. So, you know, lots of, lots of farmers, lots of like lower income families. We really had to, you know, my family, um, we, we couldn't get all the cool, the cool new toys or anything. Um, we really like made entertainment for ourselves. Um, and my parents are definitely, were definitely the kind of parents who encouraged us to play games and read and and find ways to entertain ourselves that would um you know would make us smarter and make us be able to have that skill of entertaining ourselves um without the need of anyone else or anything else um i did a lot of theater as a child that and i loved it i really wanted to be a performer um and then i had kind of a traumatic experience <laughs> uh please do tell grade, yeah, so um, in third grade, we were reading a book, and we had to, like, write a play on the book. The book was The Island of the Blue Dolphins, and um, we had to write a play and perform a play in front of, of like, the rest of the middle school, and um, I got on stage, and I totally forgot my lines, and I remember in the moment, I made up a joke, and everyone laughed, and it was, like, the best feeling of my life. And then I got off stage and my teacher like grabbed me by the shoulders and started screaming right in my face. Um, and I didn't get on stage in a theater way and again until my senior year of high school. Um, because I was so scarred by it. I did a lot of like music and stuff like that and I, I threw myself into that, but I, I was then kind of like, uh, ter- too terrified to like make a mistake and do theater again. Um, and it wasn't until much later, like as an adult, that I looked back on it and realized, like, what a huge moment in my life that was. Um, for, for both reasons, I think, one, having that first feeling of, like, getting a huge laugh from a group of people, um, especially since I was, like, not a cool kid. So, like, for the first time I was on stage and I was like, all these people like me. Right. Um, and then immediately afterwards being yelled at by an adult. Um, it was really traumatizing. Um, <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> and then, Welcome to your world. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, my parents definitely, you know, they wanted me to be a scientist. They, they didn't, they didn't really want me to be a performer of any kind. But my dad um, has an incredible sense of humor. Um, my mom loves to laugh, and like my my whole relationship with my dad is built around sarcasm. Um, so it really is, I, I, looking back, it's like, oh, I, I don't really see how I could have become anything else other than what I am right now. Right. So I'm, I'm um, curious as to why that event actually didn't scar you and make you not want to perform. Um, well, it, it, it did for a while. And then I had another teacher pull me out of it. So I, I did a lot of singing. I loved singing. Um, 
and I was in the band and stuff like that. And my senior year of high school, um, there was a, a theater teacher who had seen me perform in the chorus and really encouraged me to come out for for the musical, and I got cast as a lead in the musical, and it was terrifying. And I, I really didn't overcome my stage fright that had been like developed that had developed over all of those years until I was in in theater school. But that really started me on this path of I did the play, and then there was a woman in the audience who teaches voice lessons, and she saw me and wrote to me and said, you know, I think you really have a lot of potential. I'd like to start giving you some private voice lessons, and I started doing that, and um, it really resulted in a, a whole crazy, um, it turned turned my life upside down. I had already been accepted into a school for the biology program, and um, I was all ready to go, and just over the course of six months, I, I kind of allowed myself to do what I always had had been afraid to do, which was follow my passion, which was performing, um, and I ended up going to school for theater instead. I, I didn't go to the biology program. I went to a conservatory for musical theater and moved to New York City, and if I hadn't met those two teachers, that never would have happened. Um, yeah, who knows right. where I would be right now. That's quite a 180 degree turn from biology to, to theater school, but very yeah, cool that definitely. you there. And so in, what about you, Nathan? What uh, social groups were you a part of in school and how and when did you realize that you were funny? <laughs> um, we lived parallel existences. Uh, I grew up in the same uh, area as Natalie and I'm a little bit older, so I, um, we didn't really know each other's kids, but, but my mother ran a nonprofit theater organization for kids when I was growing up. So pretty much every summer of my life, um, I was in a musical and, uh, when I got older, I would, I would, you know, direct workshops and things like that for kids. Uh, so it was a, it was a family business, family business, call it a business. It was a nonprofit and every, and everyone volunteered, uh, including my, my grandparents built the sets and my aunts and uncles played in the orchestra pit and my dad ran the lights. Um, and it was built in an old barn in the Northeast Kingdom. And uh, it was an incredible uh, program and, and an incredible way to experience the performing arts, um, you know, as a kid. And exactly what went into that, not just the performing piece, but also like what goes into, you know, producing a full-scale musical uh, every summer. And so, you know, I was certainly a band nerd. I played trumpet, piano, and my, my sister, and, you know, we were in choruses and bands and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I think... I just came from a family of, you know, I had, I had my mom and all of her brothers and sisters and her parents were all music teachers. And so it was sort of an expected thing. We, I just grew up in a family where music and theater and performing arts was just always around. And it, and it was a good thing that it was because I was sort of a, you know, a sensitive, creative kid. And, and I grew up in, in that area where, you know, a lot of, a lot of importance is placed on the local football rivalry and, uh, and, you know, stuff that I, I couldn't really connect with or identify. Um, so in addition to the theater, all the theater stuff that we did, um, we were big fans, my sister and I and a, and a handful of the other kids we were in theater with um, were big fans of Monty Python and uh, Faulty Towers and Saturday Night Live. And so um, we started doing comedy uh, probably in high school. I think my mother, uh, we had a little window at the theater of time where there weren't any shows going up, and my my mother uh, pitched the idea that why don't you guys all get together and write a sketch comedy show and put it up yourselves? Um, 
I think she was just looking for something for us to do to get us out of her hair. Uh, but it, it worked, and, you know, we, we actually did, that first summer we did four sketch comedy shows um, two weeks apart. So we would take a week and write it, and then we would take a week and rehearse it and find all the props and costumes and stuff, and then we would put it up for uh, an audience of family and friends. Wow. And and we did that over the course of a summer, and it was a real real crash course in how hard it was to create um, live comedy, especially given that we were just high school kids. My brother and I um, lived right down the street from the theater, and we were obsessed with Saturday Night Live, like the Will Ferrell on a gas fire, Jerry O'Terry <laughs> seasons, and we went to all those shows and watched them. They were like the older kids who were doing this like really really hilarious fun, crazy thing. I'm sure that, I'm sure in her memory and in mine, it's amazing. And if I went back and watched the videotape, it would be, be awful, terrible. <laughs> um, but, but it was a great, it was a great learning experience. And it, and it, and, and I got that same group of people back together again. I was kind of the, the, the rabble rouser. Like I was always, you know, when we all went off to college, I would be the one who would, uh, during summers, I would try to get them all back together to do a sketch comedy show over the summer. Um, and and then I sort of fell away from from live performance when I went to college and um, you know I went I went to musicals uh, I went to music school for a year studied trumpet and then I switched to English because I was just writing a lot more. I kind of had checked out of the live performance thing um, until <laughs> I guess it was until I was uh, my mom uh, asked me if I wanted to be in a musical that was a four person musical they had three of the parts cast and they needed one more guy. And I reluctantly agreed, and Natalie was in that musical. So that's where we actually met as adults. And this was like, you know, I was almost 30 at that point. And so so I kind of went back to performing just for this one thing, just as a lark. And then when Natalie and I started dating, um, I, I saw my uncle take a stand-up class, and I was like, that looks like a lot of fun. I think I could do that. So I did that and kept going with stand-up, and then... Um, Natalie got real bored after a while and said, you know what, I want to do this, you're going to get to do this. Um, so we both kind of fell into stand-up and then, and then we found improv comedy and, and now we've kind of come full circle because the improv that we do now, you know, we're, we're kind of realizing, oh, a lot of that stuff that we were so, uh, so affected by as kids, Saturday Night Live and stuff, you know, all those people came out of improv and they created their sketch comedy out of improv. You know, we were just clueless theater kids trying to trying to mimic the style of Saturday Night Live, um, you know, from scratch, trying to write these sketches when we were 16 years old. And now as adults, as we're doing improv every night of the week, um, you know, and, and have our eye on creating a sketch comedy program at the club, you know, we're, we're, we've kind of come full circle in that way. I, I, I consider myself like probably more of a writer and director personality and producer than maybe than maybe a performer, whereas I think Natalie is more of the natural performer. Um, but I, I love keeping my foot in it and staying on stage and uh, and especially performing with her. It's the most fun thing I do all week. So I'm curious. You seem like you had the very different uh, ways of getting to where you got to. And you, it seems like, uh, Nathan, you were encouraged to pursue that line of uh, work. And whereas... Uh, it sounds like, Natalie, you left it and then stumbled back into it again. And so I'm wondering, like, how important is validation when it comes to your line of work? And how important is external validation compared to self-belief? Oh, gosh. That's a really good question. And we are kind of, yeah, you're right, Bond, both sides. It kind of depends. I think, you know, so Nathan's entire family is all artists, um, you know, and they all make their living doing art. And um, so... 
I, I think it was like a natural fit. Like, of course, everyone. And Nathan's sister is a professional musician. And, like, the, their entire family is just artists. Um, and I think my parents, um, my dad got an English degree and my mom got a French degree. And neither of them used their degrees at all um, anymore. So I think they were really pushing me to, to get a degree in something practical. Um, and also, you know, they, like they want their children to be better off than they were, um, to be in a more financially stable position than they were. So, um, you know, they were, they're definitely, you know, my mom plays the piano and she loves to sing. Um, my dad loves comedy. Um, but they didn't see it as like a career path. They were okay with me doing it as a hobby. Um, but it took them a very long time to get okay with me following that as a, as a career. Um, I think as a child, it's very important to get validation that doing the performing arts or any kind of art, it's so important to a child to, to see people doing it and to have people telling them that they're doing a good job and to have them encouraged, you know, have some encouragement to keep going. Eventually, as an adult, you just need to learn that what other pe- people think doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's really your own validation that, that matters. Yeah, and there is that sort of thing in our culture that says, yeah, I mean, everybody should take, should take band or sing in the chorus or do the musical, but then there's a point where, you know, you're expected to stop and get serious, right? Like that's the extracurricular, that's the, that's the, that should exist in the margins of your life. Right. And like, what are you going, what are you going to do for real to make money in, in this life? Because that's what school is ostensibly preparing you for, right? Um, and, and it's not until you, you get to be, you know, like a couple of people that you really look up to who make their living as an artist encourage you that you start to realize, oh, this is a thing people actually can make a career out of. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's probably a harder career than a lot of things, um, you know, because it's not taken seriously as a career path a lot. Um, but yeah, I think that's really, it's really important that, um, that somewhere along the way, a kid gets the idea in his head that, you know, you're, you know, you have something of value to offer if you are creative and that it is a potential career path for you if that's something that you want to pursue. Um, And you shouldn't be pigeonholing yourself into something that you see as, uh, you know, a money-making career if it's not something you're passionate about. Yeah, and and that's why I find this uh, quite fascinating because um, you think that now there are people that are looking at you and thinking, well, wow, yeah, you can actually make a career out of something like that. Whereas there probably wasn't any examples uh, locally of people that were doing something to the scale that you guys are doing. So right, but I think everything we're doing is is like kind of a. It might not be a direct result of it, but like I can name you know three, four, five individuals in my life that um, you know maybe they weren't running a comedy club, but they but but there's somebody that didn't fit the mold of, um, you know, oh, this is a person who went to medical school and then became a doctor, you know, like, like there are people who I can look at and say, this person kind of created their own thing um, out of what they were good at. And, you know, now they're, they're making a living at this creative pursuit. Um, and I, I, as a kid, I looked up to that and thought, you know, and, you know, not, not the least of which of the, the examples would be my own mother, um, you know, who, who made a life for herself, you know, by, by teaching music and theater at the local high school, but also doing this nonprofit in the summertime and the kind of impact that she had on hundreds and hundreds of kids and families um, was really inspiring to me. And, and 
and we had a whole family full of entrepreneurs and doers and people who who took the creative pursuit and the skills that they had and turned it into the way they paid their rent. Um, and so it was always like an example presented to me that you can do whatever you want to do. Um, if you want to do something creative, then you just have to, you know, you may have to figure out the way you're going to make a living at that. Um, no one's going to hand you a paycheck for it. But um, but I think that all that stuff is, a, you know, that's the reason I'm here today. That's the reason I felt like it was possible to do something that didn't yet exist mm -hmm. for a living. Yeah, I would add to that, too, that um, I had a teacher in college, or, or really a, bu a bunch of my teachers in college had this mantra that if you're going out for auditions and you're not getting the part, you need to create work for yourself. And that's the way that you get on stage and you are sure that you're playing parts that you want to play. Um, you know, if you, if you aren't getting cast in the roles you want, then produce your own show or write your own show or do, you know, create the work for yourself. And so I think that's, that's why I, I think I was inspired to do what we're doing. Um, because there wasn't like, you know, there was, there was barely a comedy. There, there were maybe five stand-up comedians who did a show once a year in the entire state when we started doing comedy, you know, eight years ago. Absolutely. And, um, and so we, but we wanted to do it more. And the more we did it, the more we wanted to do it. And so we just kept creating opportunities for ourselves to do it. And I think if you have that mindset of, I'm not going to wait around for someone to hand me an opportunity, I'm going to create an opportunity for myself, um, you're going to get a lot further a lot faster. Absolutely. I like that. That's, that's a very poignant point there. Um, so you guys are not just comedians, but actors, producers, educators, and um, you were both recipients of the Vermont Business Magazine Rising Stars Award. Uh, that must have put a lot of pressure on you to take things to the next level. Can you talk about that and also then how the idea of the comedy club came to fruition? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, it all feels sort of, I mean, it, uh, it feels frenetic and, and crazy, but it, it does feel organic the way that we built things. It really just started out with us being performers who wanted to perform more. And we also, you know, we had taught workshops before and we enjoyed teaching. And so that, that stuff was nothing new for us. What I think it really just started out, Natalie was teaching voice lessons in our apartment in, a, in a, our tiny living room. Um, and I was trying to, to find spaces to teach a stand-up comedy class. And we found this, this little space in the South End um, that was barely big enough to be a classroom and rented it out as like a, 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 we took a gamble and uh, Natalie was working at a, at a hotel at the time and she quit her job with that and I've been doing a lot of freelance marketing writing for a long time and I, and I stopped doing that and we we rented this little space in the south end and we put new floors in and we started teaching you know voice lessons and stand-up classes and had improv dropping classes and we called it spark arts and we just uh, we just started real small trying to create this incubator for you know, the performing arts and, and, Did you guys you know, know why you were going with that? Or was, were you just not really? I mean, at first, at first, when we first started doing spark arts, I was doing a lot more voice lessons and I had, I think we both were actually thinking more along the lines of maybe starting a theater company or something, um, as like a grand, you know, 10 year plan. And it just happened that like the, when we when we opened Spark Arts, we also started doing improv a lot more and started really loving that. And, and the stand-up classes really took off. 
and then we started producing show, stand-up shows more and more all around the state to the point where the year before we opened the club, we were producing a stand-up show somewhere in the state of Vermont five or six nights a week. Um, really? It was our full, you know, full-time job. We put 40,000 miles on our car that year just driving just to stand-up shows. So I, I think the other thing that's really helped us is that we've been really um, flexible um, and we can see when something is going in a certain direction. So, you know, there there are other acting classes in town. There are other voice teachers in town. There was no one else doing comedy. Um, and the more we produced comedy shows, the, the demand kept growing. But I think it became pretty clear to us, like we had, we had created this space for it and, and, and the demand kept increasing for comedy offerings, whether it was classes or shows or, um, and, and it seemed like we had kind of cornered the market on, you know, on the, on the comedy thing in Vermont, um, in a way that we couldn't ignore anymore. And, and when we first conceived of Spark, you know, it was really about, having a, uh, uh, we were trying to bring together people of all, you know, all walks of life performance wise. So we were talking about doing film screenings and, you know, and musical things and dance stuff. And, and ultimately, you know, we kind of pivoted and realized, okay, there's more opportunity here for if we just stick to the thing we're good at and the thing that everyone knows us for, um, this thing, this could grow even more. So we just, we just kept adding classes and doing more in the comedy domain. Um, and, and as the, you know, as the classes at Spark grew and grew, the independent comedy booking thing grew and grew, and, and we got closer to that idea of, well, maybe, you know, we might really need a home for this. We might need a home that's got a performance space in it. Yeah, so tell me then about, uh, the space you have today, the Armory space. Um, uh, you launched a Kickstarter campaign to start renovating it, and from all accounts pulled quite the rabbit out of the hat type trick to get yeah. that spot and raise the money that's that was required. Um, talk me through it, uh, some of the challenges, and um, I'm sure it wasn't as simple as just saying like, hey, we want that spot. Yeah, oh goodness. Well, the first week we were dating, we were like, uh, we were walking one of his friend's dogs and we walked the dog by that space and looked in the windows and said, we would love to put a theater in there one day. Um, and that, you know, that was probably nine years ago, um, way before we had any idea of what we were going to do. Um, and it wasn't the only space that we looked at. Um, it was the last space, in fact, because um, we had, you know, there's a hotel, the Hilton Garden Inn, who uses the upstairs of the building and then built behind. And what we had heard was that the entire building had been bought. Um, for the purpose of the hotel, and um, a friend of ours who is a realtor, um, I was on the board of directors of the South End Arts and Business Association with him, and he, you know, we had started negotiating on another space, and it wasn't really working out, um, and he was like, do you, do you know that there's about 6,000 square feet in the armory building? And we were down there later that day, if not the next day, because we were like, no, we didn't know that. And if we don't know that, no one else knows that either. So let's get in there before anyone else finds out what's <laughs> happening. Um, and I mean, we, yeah, the second we walked in there, we were it was, you know, almost 6,000 square feet of empty space with no poles in the way, no sight line restrictions. It was all one big empty dirt pit. And it, it, we just looked around and looked at each other and said, well, this is it. Yeah, this is, this is it. This, this is, is exactly line. what we need. 
Um, and, and, you know, that, that was coming at the end of a almost two year process of writing the business plan and rewriting the business plan. And, um, you know, we, we worked very closely with, uh, Steve Densham at the, uh, Small Business Development Center. Yeah, I mean, that was like a once a week meeting for the longest time, and he was in- invaluable in helping us, um, you know, make that business plan as tight as it possibly could be and giving us advice on how to approach potential investors. A lot of people don't know about that. The Small Business Development Center, it, you can get free, um, like free one-on-one counseling from people who have real life business experience. And man, we met with Steve uh, so many times. Probably a hundred or two hundred. Um, and yeah. he was he was so helpful. Um, we definitely wouldn't be where we are without him. You're transitioning from comedians to worrying about pitches on business and uh, money coming in and out, revenues, right. etc. How was that transition? And are you comfortable with it now, or is it something that you're still learning? I mean, the, the, and I mean, I think that's one of the things that people don't necessarily realize. You know, when we came into this, um, we were comedians, and uh, you know, we had some experience in business, but um, but just the process of putting together a compelling business plan with numbers that work and pitching to literally hundreds and hundreds of, of potential investors and being rejected by hundreds and hundreds of investors. Right. Yeah, that's. I mean, that, it's very. It was very difficult. I think, to be totally honest. Well, we have a nice relationship in that Nathan has a really, really incredible way of looking at the big picture of things. And because my parents trained me to be a scientist, I have a very logical step-by-step way of doing things. I have a good grasp on math and numbers. Um, So we kind of complement each other in that way. Mm. I think some of our previous experience in the workplace definitely came, like we brought to bear on this. I, I worked for over 10 years in the marketing field and, and like doing marketing and strategy and stuff for, for companies. And so I had a, a basic idea of, you know, of, of a lot of things that were acquired. And I think, and Natalie had worked in hotels and, and, and restaurants. restaurants and, you know, food and beverage and hospitality for the longest time. Uh, and all that, you know, really plays in when you start talking about opening a bar, restaurant, venue place with all those things, you know, incorporated. Um, so there were, there, we, we, some of the background we had was useful in that way, but yeah, there were there were a ton of new skills to learn. It really felt at times like we were, you know, we were trying to get a master's degree in about you know six months. Um, right. And it and it was disheartening at times. There were times when you know maybe someone with a different background, with you know a different amount of money in the bank and connections, might have walked into a room and walked out with a hundred thousand dollars like nothing. And we just weren't those people. So we had to learn and, and, and really, really put, put the thing together the right way over time and never ever give up. And there were moments when we, we definitely wanted to. Like there were moments where we looked at each other and said, do we have it in us to do this for another day? You know? How heavily involved are you in the day to day running off the club? And are you still wearing multiple hats? I mean, we we have been working uh, 80 to 90 hour weeks uh, for the last. The club opened in November, um, but that probably started a good year before the club. We're taking a real vacation, not a business vacation. We've taken a number of business trips, uh, but we're taking a real vacation for the first time in October. Um, and we are, over the last couple of months, we have been actively 
delegating uh, a lot of our tasks to new employees or to, to current employees to kind of uh, give us a better work-life balance. Um, but again, it comes down to one workaholism. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Not a good, not a good trend for you to get into. But it comes down to a lot of, of this idea that, you know, we don't come from families that have money. Uh, in so many of those meetings with, with banks and investors, um, the, the question just came up, well, can't you just ask, can't you just ask your parents for, for money <laughs> to get this off the ground? And it's like, uh, nope, no. can't do that. But I know, like, that's, that's, they're used to, you know, they're used to having meetings with people who could probably get a loan from their parents for, hundred thousand dollars or whatever um but that's not the reality for us so you know we're we're putting the sweat equity in and not just that but you know when we open this business there's there really was there is not anyone else who knows that side of the comedy industry in vermont short of hiring someone from new york to come up you know we have to train people in like all of the information on how to produce comedy shows and how to draw audiences to comedy shows and stuff is, is in our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and because we have been doing it together for the last, you know, seven years. And so we, we have to take the time to, to train other people in how to, to do that. Um, so I think eventually, you know, we're going to wean ourselves back to a normal, workload we're working on it which that's ironic how i just phrased that but um we're you know eventually we're going to get to a a place where we are doing a normal person's workload but for now it, it it's worth it like it's worth it to us to put the hours in because this is you know what we've been dreaming about and we are literally like we're doing something we're really passionate about the other tricky part about it was that even though, you know, we felt like we had a very solid pitch and business plan and all that, um, you know, this isn't anything that's ever been in Vermont before. Right. It was a completely new concept. So <laughs> there was a lot of like, you know, it had, we had to find investors who had vision and could see the vision that we had, uh, and get behind it. And that, and that was, you know, that was sometimes difficult. I mean, I feel really fortunate that people we do have, um, including, uh, one investor who owns other comedy clubs and has been an incredible resource for us. Um, has have really been you know supportive of what we're doing and understanding that uh, that we know our business and 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 have a, a real vision and it's been very um, very rewarding now that the club is open. Right. The reaction to the club, you know, has been just phenomenal with with audiences and with visiting comedians and like everybody is uh, just really complimentary of the of the business and the way it's run and and the vibe of the place. Um, so we feel like, you know, to a certain extent, we, we are validated in our, in our vision that we've, that we've been shopping around and killing ourselves over for three years. But, right. and to go back to your, your original question and just answer the, the, the specific question, uh, about kind of how things shake out, uh, um, most of what I do is like booking the, the, the national acts on the weekend acts at the club, as well as, the, um, whatever goes on during the weekdays, the showcases we have with local stand-up and improv comedians. So I'm putting a lot of the programming together. And working with our marketing director on a lot of the marketing and strategy stuff. Um, and Natalie works quite a bit with the food and beverage manager and, uh, you know, making sure that that, that end of the business runs smoothly, making sure the finances are in order. Um, 
the education program. The education program that we that we have all our classes and stuff. So um, so we just sort of you know split it down the middle and and you know we talk about everything. Everything is collaborative, but we we have our strengths and. Uh, we know kind of where they are. So right, right. Wow, that's fantastic. That's a lot of uh, really good information. I mean, and just thinking about you know, like you're saying, nothing like this ever existed in Vermont anyway. And so I'm sure it was just a mountain that you guys had to climb to convince investors about the the idea, about convincing you know other comedians to come up to Vermont. You know, it's not that easy. Even just getting um, musicians up here is, is a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. So that, right. that is really cool. And that gets easier. The more, the more it gets around in the, in the comedy community that you have one of the, one of the better clubs around the, the easier it starts to get to book mm-hmm. people. I, I mean, I've heard like, it sounds immodest to say it, um, but I keep hearing from comedians like this is one of the top five clubs in the country right now. Like I, I I've heard that, you know, more than, time. more than five times. Like, um, so it, it's, it's a huge compliment and it's also getting around. We're getting, you know, national level comedians are starting to become aware that we exist and want to play our club. That is a source of pride right there. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of, uh, quick fire questions, um, as we start wrapping up here. So, uh, just kind of give me quick responses. Um, if you could be, Jerry Seinfeld and host comedians in cars getting coffee. Who would your first guest be and why? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, my first guest would be Bridget Everett. She is a comedian who's also a cabaret performer. She's an incredible singer and she's body and like I just love her to death and I want to be her best friend and so she would be my first guest. <laughs> uh, probably Stephen Colbert. Uh, because I just adore him. I adore his, 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 he is one of the, just one of the funniest people alive, but I also think one of the smartest and sharpest. And so I, I would just love to be trapped in a car with him. Yeah. Um, how good are you an audience to other comedians and to comedies? Oh, uh, oh geez. Sometimes it's hard to enjoy shows in our own club because I, I can't take my mind off of, um, other details like the food and beverage and what's going on in the club that <laughs> night. Um, but I, I love, um, I love watching stand up and improv. And she has a goofy laugh that everyone knows. All the comedians know it and they all love hearing it in the audience. So when you hear <laughs> Natalie laugh in the audience, you know you're doing well. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like we're, sometimes we're a little distracted, uh, which is why I like seeing shows in other clubs and stuff. Uh, but occasionally Natalie and I will, will find ourselves you know, at a late show, the the club is doing pretty well and running on cruise control, and the, the headliner's up and he's killing it, and we just end up sort of popping a squat in the back table and holding hands and watching half an hour of a set and laughing, and that's like a real treat for us. That's a beautiful picture. Um, do you sometimes not feel funny, especially before a show? Yes. Um, uh, there are definitely times when it's like, oh, I'm not funny at all. I haven't done stand-up in a while because I got sick of my material and haven't really had the time to write more. And then with improv, it's like if you're feeling tired or anything like that or you have a bad first act of a show, it's just like, oh, what am I doing? But then you go out and the second act is awesome and you're like, okay, we're having fun now. The great part about improv is that you're, mm-hmm. you're collaborating with others. So you have other people have your back and you don't have to do it all your, all your own, you know, all yourself. Uh, yeah, I feel unfunny sometimes. I feel, I, I feel like when we were doing shows around the state, and I, I really feel for some of the up and coming stand up comedians in Vermont right now, 
who are doing this vlog now that I did then, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, driving around to whatever whatever dumb place will have you, some bowling alley or church somewhere that, that's decided they're a comedy club for the night. And, uh, you know, nine people show up and they're eating stale chicken and, <laughs> and you're trying to tell your jokes. That did great at the club last weekend, but it's, but it's like, you know, people didn't know there was going to be a comedy show there and there's a TV on behind them or, you know, it's just all, that, that's a very, that's a very tough thing to, to be and every comedian goes through yeah. it. But it makes you a better comedian. Right. I mean, that's the thing is like, if you're, as long as you don't quit, there's always another show where you can redeem yourself right. and, uh, and rediscover how funny you can be. Um, and how different crowds like you and how to interact with different types of audiences and stuff. Like, there's always another show as long as you don't quit. And so, something to learn from bombing. Anytime absolutely. You, anytime you bomb, if you can have the self-awareness to figure out what was your part in that and how you can get better, then mm-hmm. that's, that's a win, you know? Right, right. And um, what's your all-time favorite uh, stand-up comedy act? Oh, that's so hard. That is really hard. Because it changes, you know, because we're, we're, we're so, sometimes I feel like I, I wish I had more other hobbies. We're so obsessed with comedy all the time that we're always looking at who's new and who's exciting and what's, you know, I mean, I think the people I grew up being affected by were like, uh, I, I mentioned Monty Python before and Halsey Towers. John Cleese was a big influence when I was a kid. Um, we watched a bunch of old Andy Griffith stuff and Don Knotts was a riot when I was a kid. Um, but I think, and then I got into college and I discovered George Carlin and that guy blew my mind. Um, and then probably Jerry Seinfeld to a certain extent in the nineties was like a pretty, uh, affected my sense of humor. But I don't know that I can like point to one person and say, that's my ultimate all time favorite stand up comedian because, you know, there's always somebody out there who's like, you watch them live and you've never seen them before and you go, well, oh, this is something I've never seen before. This is, yeah. this is really exciting. This guy's. You know, we, we have a, our, the, the decor in our club is, um, all these, all this pop art that was made yes. by Kyle Thompson of, uh, all these different famous comedians who throughout the ages have, have somehow changed comedy in one form or another. And it goes all the way from Laurel and Hardy all the way up to, you know, uh, Amy, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. Um, and that was a very difficult list of 40 comics to make. It started with, with a hundred and we pared it down to 40. Um, but it's, you know, it's intended to be our, our way of, of showing reverence for the art form and, and our understanding that, you know, that the person you see at our club this weekend might be the, the next one of these people to change the mm-hmm. game of comedy forever. I, uh, if I had to narrow it down to uh, one stand-up that if, if, if someone was like, who's the stand-up that you would watch their special over and over and over and over again? I would say Eddie Izzard is that stand up for me and we saw him live the Flynn brought him in and man he is just so smart he's he's like quadrilingual he's he's just incredible um and I discovered him when I was in college and then you know they're not stand up comedians but Amy Poehler and Gina Fey have influenced my style of comedy so much mm. um they're you know they're just forces of nature um I, I really enjoy what's going on right now with like like the legitimization of improv and sketch yeah. uh, going on in the in, in the national scene right now because you know like ten years ago um, you know people didn't put as much uh, emphasis on or legitimacy to improv and sketch and now you have people like uh, you know like Steve Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert and Will Ferrell and you know and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler right. all those people are you know 
uber famous now, and and they all started at Second City or the Groundlings. Key and Peele. Key and Peele, like sketch and improv, has become, um, you know, it, it's starting to become a lot more legitimate than it used to be, um, and I I love seeing that because I really I really love the the idea that you know that improv teaches that you know that you're that you're in this to support one another and uh, say yes to each other and build something together. These are supposed to be quick fire. Oh, they're quick fire questions. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, we talked too much. No, that's fine. Um, so, in closing, this is a question that I ask all of my guests. I'm not sure how I'm gonna ask it for both of you, but here goes. Um, if you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourselves. Maybe as a dating couple, what words of wisdom would you say to each other? Ooh, um, I think, um, I think I would say, stop being so afraid of everything all the time and just try stuff. Because, like, I was very, very timid, had a lot of anxiety and stage fright, and I think fear holds, held me back a lot. It holds a lot of people back. So I think just saying, just, just have fun and try stuff, nothing bad is gonna happen. Mm -hmm. I would probably say, uh, just slow down and be patient. Uh, I, because I have that big picture, uh, idea of everything, I'm, oftentimes I, I see what I, what I want to build, and the reality is it's gonna take years, uh, to get there, and it's gonna take a lot of work, and it's okay to, to just, just take a breath, and slow down, and be a little patient about it, and not be so, um, you know, we have to get this done now, 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 and, and it, it creates a lot of, it has created a lot of stress in my life trying to get things to happen quicker than they physically can. So I think I would just tell my younger self to calm the hell down. Fantastic. Um, so if people wanted to get a hold of you and learn more about you and uh, the Vermont Comedy Club, um, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, um, we have a website, which is vtcomedy.com, and we're on all the, you know, Insta, Facebook, Twitter stuff. And, uh, and Natalie and I perform every Thursday night on an improv show called The Daily Grind. Um, currently, it happens at 8.30 on Thursday night. And, uh, and that's a super fun $5 show, which we always love doing. Um, but we have stuff five nights a week, and we have classes. And so just get in touch, walk in, talk to us. We're always there. Yeah, we're, we're almost always at the club, and we love meeting people. And, you know, I would say come and see a comedy show because it's fun. Uh, everyone loves to laugh. And if you're thinking about doing comedy, if you're listening to this and thinking about doing comedy, listen to my advice for my younger self. Um, just try it. Nothing bad's going to happen. Just come out and take a class, do an open mic. It's, it's fun, and we, we create uh, an environment at the club that's like a really safe space. It's a loving community. Um, so we, we love when new people come in and start trying comedy. It's, it's, it's awesome. Thank you. So, Natalie and Nathan, it's been a real pleasure having you on my show. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us your story, your knowledge, and your insights. Um, we all have our stresses and challenges and obstacles in life. Uh, that is without question. But you guys and your comedy club is proving to be a valuable outlet for us uh, through the gift of fun and laughter. 
Uh, we are better people and healthier and happier as a result. And nothing feels better and more satisfying than a good long laugh. So thank you very much. And I wish you all the best in your journey with the Vermont Comedy Club. Oh, thank you so much thank for having you. us. It was really fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Awesome. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants, I talk to Pastor Mike Creasel, the head pastor of Community Bible Church, about being a pastor and the challenges of Christianity in the least church state in the country. I think the answer kind of starts out with where you started this whole conversation uh, when you kind of were saying that, you know, people in America uh, follow the American dream. You know, you can live in America and not need God. You can prosper and not need God. And I think that mindset, especially in the Northeast, has just kind of set in over the years uh, where people have just come to that place of of realizing or believing that they don't need God. Now, I'll be honest with you, the biggest reason for that is the church. I think the church over the years has become more irrelevant. We've We've stayed inside of our walls way too long, and we haven't taken the message that Jesus gave in the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, we haven't taken it seriously and we haven't taken it literally. And what the church has done, we've, we, we call it a come-to church. We sit here in our four walls and we wait for people to come to us. And I think over the years that has backfired on the church because people, people aren't like that anymore.